is unity a good thing? You say, yes, well, think about this for a second. It depends what you're united in. And we're going to see that as we look at these two chapters, Genesis 10 and 11. As I said this morning, we're going to finish this Genesis volume 1, reading both Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, I came to the conclusion, I think it makes sense to do these both together, since chapter 11, which gives the historical account of the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages, actually explains the dispersal of the, what we're going to see in chapter 10, which is called the Table of the Nations, and we see the humanity spreading out after Noah's uh, flood into the world and uh, with different uh, people groups and different languages. And that only really makes sense when we take into account the confusion of languages that happens at the Tower of Babel. So I think it makes sense to do both of these together. And as we go through this, as we read this, there's going to be a lot of names, and I am going to do my best to read them quickly and confidently. <laughs> and you can be glad that it is me up here and, and not you. So the first section we're going to look at, we're going to see all the nations on earth descended from Noah's family, summarizing a main point here that we're going to, I think is a takeaway for us from Genesis chapter 10. On one hand, yes, it's a, it's a list of names. You can say this is, is, is boring. This is the word of God, and it's here for a reason. And the Lord inspired Moses to write these words down because this was important for us to have this. And it's going to show us the unity of the human race that we all trace back to Noah and to, uh, to his family. So, <clears throat> we'll start reading here. Genesis 10, verse 1. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Han, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So Noah and his wife, they had three sons. The three sons, along with their wives, went aboard the ark and they came off. So after humanity was wiped out because of their wickedness, after the flood, there were eight people. And so humanity is being started over with, uh, with, with these original eight people. And so it's Noah's sons and his, their wives uh, that are now the, the new kind of fountainheads for the rest of humanity as the earth needs to be repopulated. One thing I would point out is that uh, the Lord had commanded humanity, had commanded Noah's uh, family to, again, fill the earth. And not to just clump together in one place. This is going to be especially important when we get to chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. That they're, again, told to, to multiply, to fill the earth. And that means there need to be spreading out. So, as we read this next section, it's going to give genealogies of the three different sons and some basic locations of where they go to. So let's read a little bit more. So the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Magdai, Javan, Tubal, Meshesh, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Ripha, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dadanim. By the way, I'm going to be looking out here, and if anyone... Uh, seems to be nodding off or not paying attention. I'm going to call you up here to read. Okay. <laughs> okay, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with their own language, and by their clans and in their nations. And notice here, it says by their languages. What we're going to see when we get to chapter 11 is originally uh, humanity all spoke one language. 
So this is kind of letting us know ahead of time that this is both giving us a summary of how the population grew from the eight people that came off the ark to the population that was there at the Tower of Babel, but it's also going beyond that and what's happening as uh, uh, the languages are confused. Now there's multiple languages and they spread out uh, to different ends of the earth. So Genesis 10 kind of also previews what is going to happen after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And uh, at first it might seem like, well, this is just out of order, uh, but the more time I spent in this, the more I just see uh, just kind of the wisdom and why this was put to place in this uh, order. This was, we believe, uh, written by Moses under the direction of the Holy Spirit. This was not cobbled together, uh, you know, uh, just centuries upon centuries later, uh, but there really are intricate reasons why this is written as it is. So we saw there, first of all, it tells us about uh, Noah's first son, Japheth, and uh, basically they settled to what is kind of the north and north kind of west. And when we kind of give these directions, these are generalities, there are exceptions to this, and I'm sure there was intermingling and migrations and conquerings and different things that would happen. Uh, but for the most part, they seem to, uh, kind of from the Middle East, be heading uh, out to the north and to the northwest. So Greece and, uh, and maybe beyond that, ultimately. So we see them, and then we see the sons of Ham that are listed, starting with verse 6. And it says, the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, may give you a hint where they're going to head, uh, Put and Canaan. Now Canaan, the Canaanites, that's uh, along the Mediterranean coast there. So we see here these are heading towards the Mediterranean coast and also down uh, to the south. Largely there are exceptions, and some of these we don't know exactly uh, where, they, where they ended up going. Um, and Cush, that would be kind of the, Cush ends up being kind of the area kind of south of Egypt, uh, kind of we associate with like Ethiopia. So it says the sons of Cush, Reseba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Septica. The sons of Ramah were Lama and Ding Dong. That's not true. <laughs> I just said that to make sure you're paying attention. Sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. And Cush fathered Nimrod. And it gives a little more about Nimrod here. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, is this a great thing? Well, we're going to kind of see as we look at this and we see connections with Babel, probably not a good thing. And it's one thing to be a mighty hunter, but is this about him and his just, he's a good hunter? Or he is a uh, prideful man, a conqueror, um, being in, putting himself in the face of the, in the Lord. It says, therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So Nineveh, an important city, and we see him tied to this as well. Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city, Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Parthrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came. They're going to be very important. 
later on as well in the Old Testament, and Kaphtorim. So Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Hath, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. And afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza. You've heard of the Gaza Strip. And in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that are going to come up later on in the book of Genesis. Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And these are the sons of Ham by their clans and their languages, their lands, and their nations. All right, so we have Japhah, we have Ham, and then there is Shem. And we're going to see that Shem, they end up going uh, largely to the east and also kind of the region around the Persian Gulf. And Shem also fathered all of the children of Eber. I'll talk about him a little bit later. Uh, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arspashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. Now, some have uh, at times conjectured, I remember hearing this, that uh, maybe this had to do with like the continental drift, you know, that the earth, the continents were all together and this is when they happened. That's probably not what this is talking about. Uh, that wouldn't make sense. This is probably referring to the peoples of the earth being divided after what we're going to see in what happens with the Tower of Babel and uh, being forced to disperse uh, because the languages were confused. So I assume that uh, Peleg was born kind of after kind of that, that began. And his brother's name was Joktan. So now it's just, here it's just going to follow Joktan. And um, we'll come back to Peleg later. We'll see this uh, later on. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Harzer Marveth, you know, if, uh, anybody here looking for name opportunities, you know, um, you're starting a family, just, just pick one. Jira, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimel, and Sheba, Ophir, Havilel, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. And these are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages, their lands and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. All right. Made it through there. Should we do that again? No. Okay. And again, some... Uh, <laughs> There's some passages of scripture that you're probably more likely to have your life first from. But we have to, these are, it's all in there for a reason. And God puts this in here and inspired it because this is part of his inspired record. And he wants us to think about what is the reason that this is in. There's quite a few. We're going to see the show is this link of humanity from Noah and his sons uh, that we're going to see what comes after them. And it's going to uh, see this going through and people like, we'll talk about Shem and Eber and all the way to this guy called Abram. It's going to be at the end of chapter 11. 
who ends up being a big deal in the Bible. We think of what are some things uh, that we can learn from this. And we look at this, there's um, about 70 language groups that are dispersed after Babel and that we see written here. But I think one of the big takeaways uh, that we want, need to take from this and keep reminding ourselves is that according to the Bible, we are all united as one human race. That we all trace back uh, to Noah and his family and before him, all the way back to the first parents, Adam and Eve. And this means that, you know, in a world today that is so divided over race, and we think of race as these things that uh, some people, maybe in their intention to, to heal and to move forward, are actually making things worse and causing more division and more, more factions. I think the Bible gives the ultimate answer to these issues. First of all, reminding us that we are really all one race that we shouldn't even think, uh, there are different nationalities, there are different ethnicities, and we get that, not everyone looks the same, but ultimately we all, we all trace back to uh, Noah's sons and before them to Adam and Eve. And we're all part of this, the, the human race together, created by God. And therefore, anything that makes, that are, that are differences uh, is small compared to what does bind us and unite us together as far as, as, far as one Humanity is descendant from, from Adam and Eve. And this is a reminder of this. And the Bible, like I said, is the, the answer to this. Uh, and there's creation, but when we also talk about redemption and being one in Christ, even more so. So there really are not multiple races. Ultimately, we are all part of one human race. I want to talk about something just for a little bit here, too, that sometimes people wonder about. And if you, you hear things from, you know, science, and they talk about, uh, well, of course, they have a different understanding. And if you're going to start by saying, well, we know there's no God, and then evolution is the only thing they can really come up with to explain why we're here. And uh, when people start with that framework, you know, they try to look back at genetics, and they say, uh, that humanity, um, you know, is a lot older than the Bible would say, and uh, that it goes back to these uh, different, you know, clumps of people groups, and uh, that can be traced back to these large populations of, you know, ten to thirty thousand people. I don't know where they would have all come from all of a sudden. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But looking into that, um, you know, a lot of that's based on a lot of assumptions with, a, they call it a genetic clock and the amount of variations that would happen. But that's assuming that the genetic variations that we have within us are the same now as they were kind of back then and from the beginning. Whereas if we think of things from a, a biblical point of view that were created by God, uh, then we realize that the initial conditions could have been quite a bit different because Without God, the assumption is there had to be this kind of large group or else there wouldn't be enough genetic variation uh, for uh, the people that came from that. And because most of us, we actually share a lot of the same genes. And uh, different, you know, people groups, when they clump together, uh, that's why a lot of, you know, different people groups and nationalities share similar characteristics because you're sharing a lot of the same chromosomes with uh, people that are, that are next to you. But... I think this is really interesting that if we think of it 
biblically, and you go back to, let's say, Adam and Eve, like how could all, everyone have come from just two people? Wouldn't everyone just look like them? But what we have to assume is that God created Adam and Eve with a lot of genetic diversity. And even in Adam and Eve, there were not just two uh, different sets of chromosome patterns. Because remember, in every one of us, you have two sets of chromosomes. Uh, one is going to be dominant, the other is going to be you know, recessive. And that's why um, you have situations like, well, my son Joel here was born with blue eyes. Even though I have brown eyes, my wife has brown eyes, and I know there were times in the past where sometimes, you know, a kid would be born with blue eyes and, you know, the husband would get jealous and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, hey, what's going on with the Amazon delivery guy? Uh, <laughs> but when you understand genetics, you realize that, okay, uh, obviously what this means is that both Hope and I have uh, a brown uh, chromosome or gene for our eye color, and that's dominant, and therefore we have brown eyes. Uh, but we must both have a recessive blue gene. And so statistically, one out of four kids would end up with both of those genes and have blue eyes. And it happened that our fourth uh, child uh, got those and has blue eyes. Now, so what this means is that Adam and Eve uh, had their, they had each two sets of, full sets of chromosomes, okay? And I believe that it makes sense that God uh, in all likelihood, made sure that there was lots of diversity between Adam and Eve, that they weren't sharing the same characteristics. And he could have made it where the, uh, the, even within them, the two sets of chromosomes were, were very, very diverse. So in all likelihood, God packed the original parents with lots of genetic diversity so that it could result in people with a lot of different variety. And so if that is the case, when we get to Noah and his sons, uh, there would also be that same possibility because now you have uh, three sons and they would have shared some of the same characteristics being sons of Noah. Um, but they also would have had the wives and God in his providence could have arranged it that all of the, the three sons had a great deal of genetic diversity and their wives also could have had uh, also a lot of genetic diversity that they brought into this as well. And so even though there is this kind of bottleneck of humanity that happens after the flood, uh, that it really isn't a problem with uh, humanity um, populating and having a lot of the diversity and different types of people that we, we see today. Some things, as I was looking at this, this is uh, something that was interesting too, is that uh, and not to get into the science too much here, I know we've done a lot of that in this Genesis series, especially early on, um, but as far as I understand from what I've read, that a lot of the DNA we have comes in um, block structures, that there's a lot of the you know, genetic language where it's like clumped where it's all the same, and it tends to be like four different varieties of these different genetic blocks. And that's exactly what we would expect if it goes back to Adam and Eve, and they had their four different, between them, four different sets of chromosome patterns. I think this probably also ties in with the longer lifespans that we see early on uh, in the Bible. We're going to see in, in Genesis 11 that starts to come down at this point towards what we're more used to, uh, but this uh, providential genetic diversity um, could have 
been a part of this. Obviously, something unique was going on with these longer lives that the first humans had. I also think this is interesting, is that uh, scientists um, and the unbelieving scientists, they are able to say that, now they interpret this in a much different way, but that there is someone that they refer to as Y-chromosomal Adam and someone they refer to as mitochondrial Eve that are a single, uh, that, that ultimately we all go back to one common ancestor. Now they think that there's other people involved too, but that uh, if we go back far enough that there's um, one male that we all share the same uh, Y chromosome because, well, that's what makes you a male. I know a lot of people in the world are confused about that these days, uh, but if you have a Y chromosome, that makes you a male. And if you are someone that lacks the Y chromosome, that makes you a female. This is biological. It's embedded into your chromosomes. Um, and women, they also uh, they pass on some genetic information in the mitochondria. It's part of the cell. And so they're able to look back and say there was uh, one, at some point in the distant past, uh, a woman that we all kind of trace back to. But then they say, but actually, uh, these two people and their reckoning are separated by quite a bit of time. That uh, this, this person that they call mitochondrial Eve goes way back further than Y chromosome Adam. And at first you think, well, okay, that would not match the Bible then. But if you think about it, uh, actually, this makes sense. And the person that they're referring to as this uh, Y chromosome Adam this, if there was one male that we all trace back to, it wouldn't actually even have to go all the way back to Adam because it would go through Noah. Because if it was Noah and his three sons that came off the ark, then he would be uh, a common ancestor for all of us. Whereas for you had Noah's sons' wives, and they didn't, uh, they would have came from, um, they didn't come from Noah, so they would have gone all the way back to Eve. So a way that they didn't, I think, intend it, they don't interpret it in the same way, but it actually, as I look at this, makes a lot of sense with the biblical record. So Noah's sons and their wives had genetic diversity that eventually resulted in the different characteristics of the people groups we see today. You know, as they spread out and uh, tended to clump together, some of that genetic diversity was, was limited. People hung out with people that were kind of like them. They lost some of the, some of the variety, and so different people groups uh, tended to kind of coagulate together with um, certain characteristics. I think something else that we need to take from this and we need to constantly say is that we need to reject racial prejudice that there is variety, there's variety that is built into the human race by God on purpose. But we need to reject anything that is, uh, that is racist in our hearts. And we need to reject racial prejudice, and we need to focus on the fact that we are all part of this, the same humanity created by God and in his sovereignty. Racism is a sin, and we don't want to fight racial prejudice with more racial prejudice. And that's what we see happening with some people in the world today, trying to fight racial prejudice with just other racial prejudice. And that's not the way to go about it. Instead of setting people against each other, we need to remember that it's the Bible's message and the gospel heals these things and focuses on unity and what brings us together. 
And also, because we are all part of the same humanity united together, this is why Jesus could be the savior of all humans. Jesus, God didn't have to send one savior for, uh, you know, the, the Hebrews. He didn't have to send one savior for this people group and that people group. We're all connected. We're all part of the same humanity stemming from Adam. And therefore, Jesus could be the savior of, of all of us. Now, you need to turn to Jesus Christ in repentant faith to receive the work that he has done, but he is there for any human being that is willing to turn to him. And I pray that God is working in your heart, that you see that, that you see that um, despite your sin, that Jesus came to save sinners. And if you're a sinner, yeah, it's not a good thing that you're a sinner. And just to say, well, everyone's a sinner. No, it is a bad thing. That's why sin had a, a terrible price, and that's why Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for sinners like me and like you. And I pray that God would grab a hold of your heart and you would turn to him in repentant faith and receive salvation provided for you. Jesus Christ didn't become an angelic being. They are created separate. In the book of Hebrews, you read Hebrews chapter 2, specifically says he didn't become an angel, he didn't die for angels. You don't become an angel once you die, by the way. They're a whole different thing. But humans, we are all connected. We all uh, connect together, and therefore Jesus could die for humans. And actually, when you receive Christ as Savior, you're pulled out of uh, just being in the, the original humanity, being in Adam, and now you're placed in Christ, kind of a humanity 2.0, with a deeper unity that we have being found in him. I pray that would be true for you. So, chapter 10, we see there's a unity. This is a positive unity. Uh, but now we go to chapter 11, we're going to see that there's a unity that they have that is not a great unity. And then chapter 11, we're going to see here that uh, all the people of the earth are united in rebelling against the Lord by building the, the Tower of Babel. I'm going to read this account. So Genesis chapter 11 here. Uh, and on the screen, this is an artist's interpretation. Um, you know, sometimes people have in mind something looks like the Tower of Pisa. Uh, other things that um, a lot of the architecture uh, back then in that area was called a ziggurat. And it's like a stepped um, pyramid. So it probably doesn't mean it looked exactly like this. Um, but it could have looked something like this. So let's read this account. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, so we know it's kind of going back uh, to a time when after Noah and his sons, they had time to kind of populate, uh, but it's before there was different languages. And we don't know what the language it is. Some people assume it's Hebrew. We, we, we don't know. Um, does it still exist or was it something else? But I think God created Adam and Eve with the gift of language. They could communicate. Um, and it's still until this point, they all shared this. Verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They didn't have stone, they had to use bricks. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. 
Notice that, a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we're seeing a few things here that are wrong. Remember, God told them to disperse, to fill the earth. And so we don't want to do that. We want to stay together. We want to be, you know, stronger together and all this. And we want to build a name for ourselves. Let's build a city, let's build a tower, and let's, let's do this. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower in which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do now will be impossible for them. And some people probably read that and it, sound, it sounds like a triumphant, like humanity pep rally. You know, they're united, we can work together, nothing's impossible. Uh, this verse isn't meant to be a positive thing. I think it's more meant that God is recognizing we leave them in this condition. Just think of what trouble they are going to get themselves into. That their aptitude for sin and rebellion uh, is just going to keep on going. And so God in his mercy recognized this needs to be checked. That God needed to intervene in this. They had built this tower. They thought they were going to make a name for themselves. You know, reaching to the heavens. You know, are they going to displace God? Are they going to join him? Uh, but the focus is, was on them and their glory. But notice it says here, the Lord had to come down to look at their tower, as high as they thought it was. Um, and, and, you know, God is beyond, you know, time and space. Uh, but as much as they thought they were reaching up to the heaven, it was still a pathetic thing as God looked down on their achievements and what they thought that they were doing. So, verse 7, Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, all the earth. And they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The name uh, Babel. You know, the name Babel actually means like city of, uh, I think, the gate of God. And they viewed it as this great thing. Look at this, um, you know, what we have done. But here points out it actually is really close to Balel, the Hebrew word for to confuse or to babble. And we talk about, you know, somebody babbling uh, with confused language. Uh, just making what God, what they thought was going to be their pride, uh, God made into, it was a mockery of them. So we think through this and some of the lessons it has. It gives us an account of how God caused them to spread out, where we get the uh, different languages from. And of course, the languages have taken different shapes, you know, over the, um, uh, the millennia that have come since then. I mean, even English um, you know, a few hundred years ago was quite a bit different. Some lessons as we think about this is that um, you know, humanity rebelled against God. And there's at least a few things that they're doing. They were blowing off his commands. They thought, well, we know better than God. God told us to do this. We don't like that. We're going to do this instead. And it's always a bad idea to do that, to substitute our wisdom, our preferences for what God has, tells us to do. We want to seek after God's will and what he tells us to do because he is the Lord and we are not. And when we get that confused, who is the Lord of the universe, it leads to a lot of bad things. 
And here they thought they were going to also uh, you know, build this tower. And it says it was for their pride, their name. We don't exist for the glory of our name. We exist for the glory of his name. We exist that, that he would be magnified. He would be glorified in our hearts. And whenever any of us as a, as a, as an, as a humanity or a nation or a church or individuals, that we start to let that creep in, that it's all about my glory, our glory, then things are going sideways. They're going different from the way that God created us, and we're in rebellious sin because we are to be here for the glory of God in Jesus Christ, not our own glory. We also see here that unity isn't a virtue if you are united in rebelling against the Lord. Unity can be a great thing, but in itself, it's only a good thing if you're united in the right cause. And as a people, we want to be, as a church, we exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to be united in that. But if all humanity comes together and we're united for our own glory, or we're united in opposition to the Lord, uh, that is not good unity. That is, that is sinful. So unity on its own is great. Um, but we need to be united by the Lord and by his truth. You know, sometimes people want to say, you know, wouldn't it be great if all of the, um, you know, uh, the Christian denominations and different ch uh, churches, you know, were able to put aside all their doctrinal differences and just come, to, come together and uh, leave aside all those things that divide us? Well, would it be great? But if it means we have to throw out what the Word of God teaches us, if it means we have to, aban we have to abandon uh, solid doctrine given to us, revealed to us by the Lord, uh, that's not a good thing. There are key important things that we need to be united on, who God is, the gospel message, core things. And if we're not united in those things, then any unity we could have doesn't matter at all because we'd be united in opposition against the Lord, and that's not where you want to be. You don't want to be on the team that is against the Lord and working against him. And again, if you've realized that that's the team that you're on, the Lord offers you that you can switch sides. You can repent, turn to him, and receive Jesus Christ, trusting in him uh, with repentant faith as your savior. Being in opposition to God is not where you want to go because you're going to lose. And that's what happened with humanity here. Rebelling against God will not succeed. It didn't succeed for them, and it is not going to succeed for any of us as well. There may be short-term successes. It may seem like for a while, like this tower, look at this is great. Look at what I have done. Look at what we have done. But ultimately, if you really want to be on the right side of history, you need to be on God's side of history. And praise God that through Jesus Christ that we can be united to him. But that means giving up our pride, it means giving up our self-will and coming to the Lord, uh, the Lord that loved you enough to go to the cross to save sinners. Their rebellion. And despite their pride in their tower, God still had to metaphorically go down to see them. Our achievements are never as great as they, we think they are. Think, look what I have done. Look at this great thing. And God, from his perspective... Uh, what have you built? Uh, he made this whole world. He made every mountain on this world. He made every star in the galaxy. He made every galaxy in this world. 
anything that we could do and build is insignificant compared to what he has done. Let's keep perspective here. Let's worship the one that really deserves the praise and the glory. And that's where the most happiness and fulfillment you're going to come in, your life is going to have will be. Not in seeking your own glory, not in seeking your own self-esteem, but by treasuring God in Jesus Christ and finding joy and living for his glory instead. He receives the, the glory, you receive the joy that comes from that, and that is the good news that we offer you in Jesus Christ. So again, we see that the Tower of Babel is given here. It's after the table of the nations. There are reasons for this. Again, they had to have the initial descendants after Noah. I think, too, it also ends this section. We have a little more to read. Uh, but it's just reminding us that humanity's sin problem has not been solved. And it goes into the next section, starting with Abram, uh, who is Abraham, uh, reminding us that, again, Noah and the Ark, the Flood, these things have not solved humanity's sin problem yet. A deeper solution still remained. And also, in doing this, it placed an emphasis on the divide between, there was somebody called Eber, and he had two sons, and it already talked about one of his sons, Joktan, and traced him in chapter 10. It mentioned Peleg, but it didn't trace his descendants, but now it does that here. So let's finish reading this section here. Verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Again, was one of Noah's three sons. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkfashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkfashad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Arkfashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkfashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. You're going to notice here the lifespans, they still start longer than what we're used to, but they're starting to come down. Another thing to notice, it doesn't mention here, like it does in the other genealogies, the and they died. Of course they did. And it says how long they live, and obviously that means there was an end to it. But it's kind of giving us a hint here that this is, there's something that is more associated with life and hope in this line that is being given. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Rehu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag, and Reh who lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This Abram guy is going to be important. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
And Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishach. And Sari was barren and had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is where we're going to end for Genesis volume 1. It mentions this guy, Abram. This can be the next section, Abram, who gets called Abraham later on. And you don't have to wait until sometime when we start Genesis volume 2 because you have a copy of God's word and you can read this. I encourage you to do so. And as we look at this, one of the things that we see in this last section, this hope going forward, is that even though humanity is still enmeshed in sin, okay, and there's this big problem, that God is faithful to his promise. That God after Adam and Eve had sinned, had promised that there would be a seed that would come from Eve and that would crush the seed of the serpent. A seed that would one day result in the Messiah, who we know that is Jesus Christ. And so although humanity continued to bell, God was faithful to guard his seed that would one day lead to the Messiah. And we look at some of the names here. And I just want to point this out. Shem. Sometimes you hear of... Uh, uh, prejudice against uh, Hebrew people as being called anti-Semitic. That's where this comes from. And in, it's Shem, but sometimes the, the H sound would come and go in pronunciation. But it's, it's anti-Semitism because uh, the Hebrew people were descendants of Shem. So hence, Semitic people. We saw one of his descendants was Eber, and again, I said the H sound can kind of come and go. Eber, so you had a Heber. This is the Hebrews trace back to Eber. And that's where that name comes from. That's why they're called Hebrews, because Abraham was the, the father of uh, what Jacob and his 12 tribes become the, uh, what we think of as the, the Hebrew people or Israel. Uh, they trace back through Eber. And then Abram, who is also Abraham, father Abraham, um, and God gives his covenants to as we keep reading. But God is faithful. God continues to be at work. And through this, even though it's a lot of names that we had to read through, we see that we are all united as one human race. That is a good thing, but being united in, in rebellion against God is definitely not a good thing at all. It is sinful. That is terrible. And God was faithful and kept his promise and did something else. And when we get to Acts 2 in the New Testament, we see the start of something new. We see the, the New Testament church brought into existence. And when the New Testament church in Acts 2, we see that there's a, this thing that happens. And instead of languages being confused, God seems to be doing the Tower of Babel in a sense in reverse. And through the apostles as they're proclaiming, God miraculously allows people that are gathered from the, the, the different ends of the earth to, to hear in their own language. And I, th I think the most important thing about this is the, not just uh, having to do with the languages, but the deeper thing, the deeper type of unity, that humanity at Babel wanted to be united for their own glory. 
But as we turn to Christ and are united to uh, Jesus Christ in the body of Christ, we have a unity that is not focused on our glory, but on the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that's what unites us most of all. Let us live for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these inspired words and the meaning they have for us. Help us to recognize and realize that you created us all and that we all trace back to Adam and Eve and then to Noah and his family and that there is a unity in the, the, the human race, Lord God. And so, Lord, let us uh, treat other people, um, even if they're from a, a different ethnicity, Lord God, uh, with the unity that, that does bind us, Lord. But even more, for those of us that are in Christ, let us look to that as our ultimate unity, that even is beyond um, and nationality or ethnicity or anything, that the deepest unity that we have is being united together by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Let us not live for our glory. Let us not live for the fame of our name, but for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who loved us, who died on the cross to save us, who rose again, intercedes for us, and will come again one day. And we long for that and we look forward to that. In the meantime, may we be about his work and living every moment for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.